And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. The last three F's that you heard in my intro are the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe. Now, I love fringe topics. I think that they are so much fun, and I've been intrigued by them ever since I was a little kid. And you'll notice I sprinkle them throughout this show. And one of the ones that I keep going back to are UFOs, you know, unidentified flying objects. And I think, you know, what's amazing is in the past you know, two years or so, there's been a lot of stuff that's hit the news that makes this topic particularly uh, present in the zeitgeist, in the, you know, our common, and our common consciousness. And I think that this is a perfect time. You know, this is the 60th anniversary of the, really the first alien abduction, uh, and that's the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case. And so for that 60th anniversary, I have her niece, uh, Betty's niece, Kathleen Martin, on the show to talk about her book, Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. And I'm really excited to talk about this because this is one of the most credible cases of UFO abduction that we have on record. And, you know, I also want to mention that this has, you know, also been on my mind because this episode is coming out on May 17th. Now, May 16th, which was obviously yesterday for those who excel at math, they had a 60, 60 Minutes had an interview with Luis Alessandro. Actually, they did a whole piece on UFOs. Lou Alessandro is a guy who was in charge of identifying what they call unidentified aerial phenomenon. And, you know, he headed up a group under the direction of Senator Harry Reid, because 2008 to 2017. This is very recent. Uh, and so in this particular interview, I want to mention a few things because I'm hoping that you hearing this is going to put tonight's episode into perspective and possibly all of human history into perspective. But let's just start with this episode. So Bill Whitaker, the interviewer, asks the question, so what you're telling me is that UFOs, unidentified flying objects, are real. And Luis answers, Bill, I think we're beyond that already. The government has already stated for the record that they're real. I'm not telling you that. The United States government is telling you that. Now, this is very important because he then later on in the interview goes on to explain the capabilities of some of these craft that they're seeing. And uh, so here's a quote from the interview. Luis Alessandro again. Imagine a technology that can do six to 700 G-forces that can fly at 13,000 miles an hour that can evade radar, and even fly through the air and water and possibly space. And, oh, by the way, has no obvious signs of propulsion, no wings, no control surfaces, and yet still can defy the natural effects of Earth's gravity? That's precisely what we're seeing. Now, this is important because those are incredible capabilities. And if what he's saying is true, if the government is admitting that these craft that, that have these capabilities are out there, uh, with no, and they don't really have any any explanation. Obviously, you know, we would think that other governments may be in charge of these things. But some of the capabilities of these crafts go far beyond what human 
what human beings are capable of in ways that make this technology seem like it's very much in the future. And even Luis goes on to say that, you know, we don't know, there may be another intelligence that's behind these, or they may not be not of this earth, right? So we can't commit to any of that. But I just want to make a leap of faith here for a second. And let's just, let's just say, for the sake of argument, that these craft are in fact piloted by intelligences that are far that are far advanced from another planet from another solar system and they have this technology to do all of these things so if the government is admitting that that something with those capabilities that i just listed are existing now this is not the first time we've seen this these recent videos that the pentagon has has shown and admitted to and and is verified these aren't the first this has been going on for years you know i did a whole episode with stanton friedman who's who's the co-author with kathleen martin on tonight's episode you know we did an episode on roswell well that was the first time that we heard and saw about this uh it was heard and and saw anything on this and i think that that's important to note because this has been going on since the 40s now imagine that if the government admits that this stuff has been going on then we kind of have to look at all of these experiences, all of everyone, you know, the individual experiences, the stories, the anecdotes that we're hearing, and say that what if, let's just say 1% are true? Well, if we're admitting that UFOs are true, then some of those may be true. And if some of them are true, possibly tonight's. That is also other a further verification that tonight's episode could be true, which is more than just observing a craft. That's only part of the story. The other part of the story is abduction, contact being on that craft. And I think that that is a really interesting lens to think of the possibilities that the government may be admitting that this stuff is happening and that it's real. And I just want you to think about that as we go into tonight's episode. So um, have that on your mind and let's talk right now. Kathleen Martin, let's get right into this because this is one of my favorite stories of all time. Kathleen, thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, let let me start out by saying I am an open-minded skeptic when it comes to kind of when it comes to UFOs, fringe topics. I really enjoy them. I love I love the idea of strange phenomenon and uh, and you know ghosts, aliens, you know Bigfoot, all that stuff, Bermuda Triangle. You know my grandmother who was a devout Catholic, surprisingly enough, got me into all this stuff. Is that so? Yeah, how weird is that, right? Right. But I've I've always I've always enjoyed it, but I'm very skeptical. I never want to be that person who believes something just because they want to believe. As much as I yeah. love Fox Mulder and as much as I love that poster, I never want to be that that person. I always want, you know, a lot of proof. And I've been lucky enough and and you may you may um you may appreciate some of these things as well. I've been lucky enough to do this. I did this a 75th anniversary of the Battle of Los Angeles episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a 70th anniversary on the Roswell crash with your co-writer and uh, an absolute pinnacle of the UFO industry, Stanton Friedman. Yeah. Uh, you worked with him on his book we talked about. The most reputable person in UFOs. But what's great is, so this is, I believe, if my math is correct, this is the 60th anniversary of, I mean, in September, but the 60th anniversary of the Betty and Barney Hill abduction event. Yeah. And uh, I'm really excited about this. It's kind of crazy that it's gone, that it's been that long. Does it seem like that for you? I mean, you're heavily into this. I mean, this the years must fly by, but you know, you were heavily involved when it happened. You were, you were very young at the time, but does it seem like it's been that long or what, what's it been like for you? Well, I was a teenager when it happened. I was 13 years old and uh, it's difficult to believe that 60 years have passed. My goodness. Yeah. <laughs> but I was uh, from from day one, from the day they arrived, when Betty called my mother and I was home from school in the afternoon and 
overheard uh, my mother's side of the conversation. And then my right. mother told me what she was talking about. And within a couple of days, my family, my mother, father, and two brothers and I drove to Betty's and Barney's house. Uh, and that's when I heard the story firsthand from Betty. My father sat quietly in a corner of the living room with Barney, which was unusual for Barney. He was usually uh, very outgoing and boisterous with the children. And, but he was waiting for a phone call from Pease Air Force Base. Plus, he was kind of ruminating about what happened and what he remembered. And uh, he was having a difficult time with it because he was a confirmed skeptic, probably even <laughs> more than you, because he was close-minded. Uh, about oh, yeah, the topic, yeah. and uh, so he had was having a difficult time. But we had the opportunity at that time to see the shiny spots on the trunk of the car that caused a compass needle to a whirl, indicating a magnetic field. And uh, also, they had not been there the day before. Uh, we saw the watches that would not run and never ran again. I still have Betty's watch. I'm the uh, executor of the estate and the trustee of the estate. So I set up <laughs> oh, an, ar that's cool. an archival collection at the University of New Hampshire, but I have my own archival collection as well uh, at my home in Florida. So uh, locked up, by the way, <laughs> with security <laughs> on the house. But uh, it's so this. Uh, has been near and dear to my heart for a very long time. Uh, I started to investigate this case in 1990. Uh, by that time, I had been uh, a school teacher and I'd been a social worker, and I was. I decided to leave the field. I I had five children at home at the time, and. Uh, kind of a lot of work and feeling very tired. So I left, and uh, but I was accustomed to having intellectual stimulation. I was always going to graduate school and writing papers and doing research. And so I decided that what I would do is investigate my aunt and uncle's case. The reason for that was that the information that I was reading about and also seeing on television in that time frame was inconsistent with my memory and inconsistent mm. with the things that Betty said. So I wanted to separate fact from fiction. And that's when I began my 14-year investigation, uh, study of all of the archival records, uh, I even transcribed the hypnosis tapes and did a comparative analysis of Betty's and Barney's statements vis-a-vis -vis, uh, five dreams that Betty had that began 10 days after this encounter and lasted for five days. And she had them first thing in the morning as she was waking up. Barney was not at home because he was working overnight at the post office. And she wrote these dreams down. Uh, she thought that they might hold some significance because they contained information for which she had conscious recall. And But sandwiched in to that information was a UFO uh, 
abduction. Now, I don't want to get too, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here because that's all that's all really interesting. Because what what I think what I love I mean this story has been written about by you know a lot of people both credible and not so credible, and right. and it's it's widely considered to be the first the first publicized and possibly the first scientifically researched alien abduction in history, I guess. I guess I could be yeah. as bold as to say that. Yeah. And so that's what makes this kind of interesting. And there's lots of really important elements here. And I think what's important, what I kind of want to capture, uh, no pun intended, what I kind of want to capture, exclamation point, is your <laughs> take on this. Because I think you have a very unique perspective in that you were involved at the age of 12, 13, and as I've mentioned on the show several times, that is really the age where the things that interest you at that time, the things that really capture your attention, the things that you become passionate about, become lifelong interests. And I don't know if this particular, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth and say that this incident projected you down this path, but at the very least, it must have given you very strong memories, and I want to talk about that. But okay. before, so let's let's put a pin in that because we I want to talk about the actual event first, and then I want to get your kind of perspective on it. Uh, I think that might be the best way to go with this. So um, and so we're talking. So just to give a quick a quick rundown, we're talking about your book Captured. The Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, and I love that name. It sounds like a psychedelic rock album. Is that kind of? Uh, <laughs> were, are you a fan of the '60s, or what, what? How'd you get that title? Well, uh, I got the title because uh, Barney, when he was standing in the field, felt that he was going to be captured like a bug in a net when this craft was hovering only a hundred feet overhead, and. Uh, he was terrified. He went running back to the car, screaming to Betty that they had to get out of there or they were going to be captured. So, you know, and that's what happened next. So uh, captured was uh, the word that I used. I had a difficult time coming up with a title. And then finally, you know, I've, I just it sort of popped into my head because of that word. And then yeah. captured, you need more than that. So. Well, who who was captured? Betty and Barney Hill. By what? <laughs> a UFO. <laughs> well, that's much more pragmatic than I imagined. <laughs> <laughs> I expected a better story. I thought you listened to like Jimi Hendrix, and you're like, it's the Betty and Barney Hill experience, man. No, no, like no I'm I'm a kind of conservative, rational, uh, scientific person. Well, that's good. I mean, you need that for this. You know, one last question before we get into this, because there's a lot. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm presenting a contact in the desert this year. Oh. Basically, alien technology, the stuff that we see, whether it's craft, whether it's abduction, stuff like that. And so I've been doing a ton of research on the things that the Pentagon, the government, in the past year, and definitely in the past six months, there has just been an incredible amount of acknowledgement, I guess, for lack of a better term, like that, that these things are happening, the government doesn't know what they are, and the capabilities are far beyond what that, that is possible within, you know, human capabilities. So do you think that given the historical significance of this particular case, do you think if the government were to admit to much more than they are now, do you think this would be reexamined in a much, with a much more discerning eye? 
I do not think that it would be in terms of uh, alien abduction at the current time, because uh, I've talked to military officers and I asked, I, I said, well, I, I think that there, you have the problem with contact because uh, we are militarily incapable of stopping this. And so, you know, that entire program would have to change and uh, would have to be a lot more open with volunteers or individuals who wanted to end contact. And uh, the military officers agreed with me that uh, that that was the reason. So uh, they certainly don't want to bring that to the public at this point, but uh, they appear to be... uh, slowly releasing some information. Uh, And I think that they're going to gauge the public's response to it. If uh, we do have public hysteria, I suspect that uh, they will clamp the lid shut again, just as they have done in the past. I I guess that makes sense. I mean, what's, what's strange to me is that, you know, I mean, just recently there was a FOIA request that uh, showed up on, on the blackvault.com. Uh, and it was, uh, I forget the man's name, but he put in a FOIA request for uh, any, any, sort of, any sort of paperwork that, that was, any research that was done on recovered materials. Yeah. And he got yeah, back 154 pages. And it's, you know, I haven't gone through it all yet, but this is definitely going to be something that I need to look at. But it's about, you know, the memory metal. They give it a name. It's got incredible properties. And this, these are government documents. This isn't like made up. And when you start seeing things like that, when you start all, you know, and this was mentioned, you know, I think Stanton Friedman mentioned this at the Roswell crash, this memory metal, the people that were there talking about it. When that stuff starts getting admitted to by our government, it then starts to put – the reason why I ask about the Betty and Barney Hill case is because then it starts putting all of these stories that people thought were fantastical. It starts saying, well, now hold on a second. This may have happened. And if you can get most people to say this may have happened, that's a big step forward because now it almost rewrites history from the 40s on. You know, uh, and the people who got dismissed as kooks. I mean, this all gets rewritten. So I think this case becomes very, very pivotal in my opinion. I think that, I mean, it possibly could at some point in the future if the public was ready for that sort of thing. And Mm -hmm. that's why I continue to ask scientists to examine the evidence. And and in the new chapter uh, in Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience, uh, there are updates, scientific uh, investigations and uh, experimentation that has occurred since the first book was published. So it's all there. And it's all, I mean, it's all really riveting and captivating. And there's so much that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, as someone who's trying to find the holes and the logic, the the leaps that people make, uh, which is almost required for something like this, uh, there are very few and far between. It's all pretty solid. So let's talk about the Betty and Barney Hill story. I think there's a couple things that make this thing unique. We've already talked about it being essentially the first UFO abduction. It's a double abduction. It's a married couple. 
Um, they and this really defined the rest of their lives. And I think what kind of shed some, you know, some doubts on their story were a couple of things that also make it unique. Uh, you know, not the least of which is their name are Betty and Barney, and the Flintstones were very popular at the time. I'm sure that didn't help with their credibility. Uh, they were a mixed race couple in the 50s, uh, you know, in the late 50s, early 60s. So need I say more there? Uh, and also. Um, this is, you know, we're talking about actual physical contact with flying saucers. And this is something that had really just kind of captured the American uh, interest at the time. And so I think that those are really the things that make it unique besides the physical evidence that we'll get into in a second. But from cult, from a cultural standpoint, did I miss anything that kind of made this important, you know, historically, culturally, anything like that? Well, it was the first scientifically investigated case of alien abduction. There were other cases before that, uh, but they were not investigated until much, much later when we began to realize that uh, we had been biased initially. Uh, We would would not accept even uh, two UFO sightings by the same person as being real uh, (laughs) back then. uh, not to mention alien abduction. So that was completely unheard of. Betty and Barney were thought to be the first. And uh, I think it's important to say that all of this information was to remain confidential. And there's mm-hmm. very good reason for that. Betty and Barney never wanted to go public. Um, and Betty was a social worker for the state of New Hampshire. Uh, Barney worked for the post office. But in 1965, before it went public, uh, they were highly politically active. They were invited guests at Lyndon Johnson's inauguration. Uh, Mm -hmm. Barney had been appointed to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights for as Mm -hmm. the state of New Hampshire advisory board member. He received uh, an award from Sergeant Shriver from the Federal Poverty Program for setting up the Rockingham County Community Action Program. He'd served in uh, that as the first uh, director of the board of directors uh, or chairman of the board of directors. And he'd also received an award from the Archdiocese for the state of New Hampshire for setting up a literacy program. So, uh, you know, he was very bright. His IQ was 140. Oh, wow. And he was very actively involved in the community. Betty was very bright, too. Um, she wasn't sure if UFOs were for real or not. She had no previous interest, despite what you've probably read, to the contrary. And, uh, and as I said earlier, uh, Barney simply did not believe that flying saucers were real. He thought it was impossible. Well, I mean, it's it's the thing that I think gets often overlooked in the story is just how active both of them were, but specifically how how active Barney was in the civil rights movement, how active in government. Uh, these, you know, they have a lot of credibility between the two, and as we'll learn, you know, th- their stories, you know, independent of each other, are very similar. Uh, it's this is a really compelling case. And it begins, you know, September 19th, 1961. But before that, I'm just going to get some of the details early on. Uh, I believe they were going on a delayed honeymoon to Montreal. They wanted to check out Niagara Falls. 
it had been recommended to them. I think they'd been married like 18 months at the time. And they went mm-hmm. with their, their dachshund, Delcy, which mm-hmm. I, the dog, this, this poor dog. I mean, if only the dogs could talk, right? I mean, this dog must have seen everything. I don't believe it was taken aboard. Um, you know, but I've also often heard, uh, I heard a comedian say that if aliens did come down to this planet, they'd think the dogs were in charge because they lead us <laughs> and we're always picking up their poop. Uh, so I'm surprised the dog wasn't investigated. But anyway, the dog's with them. Uh, they were they were in Montreal. They had to head home because they heard that a hurricane was coming to the East Coast. And so they, they were coming back from Montreal down to New Hampshire where they lived in the coast. I believe it was Portsmouth. And they were driving. And I would like you to take it from here because the details here are very important, what happens here. Yes, well, they were driving at night. They uh, had plenty of energy. Uh, they had were well-rested from the night before. They decided that they would just uh, sort of complete their vacation. Uh, and so they, they were tourists along the way. And they entered New Hampshire finally around 9 o'clock at night or so. And they stopped at a restaurant in Colebrook, got a little bit to eat, a cup of coffee. They thought if they grew tired, they would just stop at one of the um, motels with cabins along the way. They had traveled that route before. Uh, they knew it well. And so uh, they left that restaurant in Colebrook. They headed south. And when they were just south of the town of Lancaster, which is the next city south of Colebrook, uh, Betty saw a new light in the sky, and at first she thought, wondered if it was a falling star, but it fell upwards, sort of swooped upwards, which was very perplexing to her. It was a light, bright night. The moon was about three quarters full. Uh, the weather was clear. There were high, thin, thin clouds in the air. You could see the, the, um, the stars through the clouds. And so she's watching everything. Uh, Barney's just driving along, feeling as happy as can be. And this uh, light came in closer and closer and closer. And finally, when they were uh, just south of Twin Mountain, which is just north of Franconia Notch, a beautiful tourist attraction, uh, all natural, nothing, (laughs) uh, no activities there except for hiking and and sightseeing and that sort of thing. There is a ski area there. But they stopped north of there at uh, the Mount uh, Cleveland picnic area and got out of the car. Um, Barney took his gun out of the the trunk at that time because he and the dog were going to walk along the woods. It was a picnic area. There were barrels. He was afraid the bears might come out of the woods and he could shoot his gun into the air to drive the bears away if they came out. Uh, Betty looked at this object. Uh, It looked very strange to her. Uh, Barney took the binoculars and uh, took a look and got back into the car. He knew that this was uh, something unusual, but he said to Betty, let's get going. I want to get home. Um, Stop thinking about flying saucers. So, They headed south through Franconia Notch. When they uh, entered Franconia Notch, straight ahead was uh, the Cannon Mountain Ski Area. And there was a ski lodge at the top of the mountain. There's also a signal tower uh, in that area as well, if you go a little south. And so 
um, as this craft passed over the top of the building, the, the light blinked out, suggesting that possibly uh, there was an electromagnetic field that interfered with that light. Uh, they stopped on the highway by the old man of the mountain, which is just south of, of Cannon Mountain, and uh, got out of the car. In those days, you could just pull over beside the road. And so it was very easy. They got out. They looked at this craft through binoculars. At this point, it was hovering next to the old man's profile, which was 48 feet from uh, forehead to chin, natural rock formation. It was the New Hampshire symbol until it fell off the mountain in 2003. But anyway, so they're looking at this. It's one and a half to two times the length of the old man's profile. It appears to be lighted on only one side, and it appears to be rotating. And then it starts moving, and it's uh, bouncing back and forth in the sky, like a kind of a yo-yo is what Barney compared it to. Can I pause you for one second here? So just just so I can get a sense of what's going on here. So so they they were on a ro- they were on a ro- uh, road, rural part of New Hampshire. They see a light in the sky, similar to like what a satellite would be, just a pinpoint like a star. And as they're driving, this thing gets significantly bigger to the point where as they're driving by the old man in the mountain, this thing is roughly the size, I think, of, of a dinner plate held at arm's length, I think is the official <laughs> the official description in one of the one of the Air Force Air Force reports. Yes, but that was South Affair. South okay. But it's large. This is very visible in the sky. I mean, this 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 is no longer a star. It's very visible. So one of the questions I had that I, that I've got to, I want to get answered here is what this is one of the things that kind of struck me about this is that you've been watching this light in the sky. I mean, an airplane at ten thousand feet couldn't pick out an individual car from that height. How did this particular craft find them and get this close to them? At the same, I mean, I don't know how many cars were on the road at the time, but this is always one of the details that always struck me as very odd. And I don't know why they signal singled them out from that from star distance to you know dinner plate distance. You know, well, that's a very good question. Uh, in terms of uh, the questions that I asked Betty about that, uh, she said, "Well, they had stopped and they had looked at this craft." But, you know, they only stopped when it came in very close. So why did they descend on Betty's and Barney's car? Uh, Betty and Barney always thought that it was just that they were alone during the off-season. There were very few vehicles on the highway. Uh, Today, uh, you know, I, I have been the Mutual UFO Network's director of experience or research and have worked on three major research studies with uh, more than 5,000 participants. So I've, I've spent a long time looking at this part of it. And we know that the majority of experiencers have implants that can, that where they can be tracked. There are other reasons for them too, but uh, there is the possibility that Betty had an implant that Betty had been taken in the past, but didn't remember it. And, you know, so no one can answer that question. I don't mean to sound disrespectful. That seems like a quite a bit of a leap that she'd been taken before and had an implant. I mean, is there any evidence that would suggest that? Well, she refused to uh, undergo any testing for an implant. But what I'm doing is 
I'm saying we don't have an answer for that. We have okay. Betty's and okay. Barney's speculation. We have right, the right, right, current right, right. level of knowledge about how people are taken. I see, I see. Okay, and that makes sense. That makes sense. Yes. Okay, okay. So so that actually, I mean, if that were to be, that would be probably the most plausible, I mean, once you accept a lot of this <laughs> as fact, um, that becomes the most plausible explanation given what we do know. Okay, that does answer that question. So now we're, so they're looking at this, it's at the old man in the mountain, it's significantly closer to them, and they're still, they're continuing their drive down this dark rural highway. Yes, they continue their drive down, uh, they exit Franconia Notch, and now they're in the tourist section. During the off-season, this is where the motels and the cabins were, uh, where the tourist attractions were. They're driving along, and Betty tells Barney, it's coming in close, Barney. You have to stop the car. You have to stop the car. And Barney doesn't want to stop the car. He thinks, well, he'll appease Betty by looking for a place. But before he can pull over, the craft swoops down and stops at about 200 feet above their vehicle. And this is when they see it and and describe it as large as a dinner plate held at arm's Mm. length. Got it. Okay. And uh, it's right over part of the road that Barney's driving on. So he has to pull to the middle of the road so he won't be directly underneath it. And so he opened the car, stopped the car, opened the door, left the car running, and looked up at this thing through binoculars. When he stepped away from the car, it then shifted to an adjacent field. And what he was seeing at this point was disc-shaped. He could see a lighted row of windows, and uh, it was completely silent and just hovering or hanging there in the air. And as he followed it into the field, it descended to within 100 feet and about 50 feet away from him. He looked up again and he saw uh, eight to 11 figures looking down at him. And this was all part of conscious recall. In the letter Mm -hmm. that they wrote uh, six days later, They wrote that Barney had observed figures dressed in black, shiny uniforms. And so he was looking up at them, just saying he could not believe this. He kept pulling the binoculars away from his eyes and shaking his head and putting them back up, and it was still there. And uh, all of a sudden, all but one of those figures in the windows turned and walked away uh, to what appeared to be some kind of panel. And when that happened, their arms went up. Barney could now see them from the tops of their heads down to about their knees. And little red lights started to slide out from the craft on little fin-like structures. And something started to drop down out of the bottom of the craft. He wondered what that was. Was it a rope? Was it a ladder? We know today that it wasn't either of those things. Um, But this is when Barney became terrified. He thought that there was a plan for him, and that plan was to capture him like, quote, a bug 
in a net, close quote. He ran back to the car, screaming to Betty that they had to get out of there or they were going to be captured. As he was entering the car, he noticed that the craft was heading back in his direction. He told Betty, roll down the window and look up and see if you can see the light. He, she did. All she could see was blackness. The craft was right over the top of the car. She couldn't see the stars. She couldn't see the moon. And then within five or six blocks, she and Barney heard a series of code-like buzzing sounds that were striking the trunk of their vehicle. Uh, they felt a tingling sensation pass through their bodies, a vibration that passed through the car. And the next thing they knew, they were 35 miles south of that point on the highway with no memory of driving that route. They did have vague memories of observing a very large fiery orb that appeared to be sitting on the ground. They had memories of finding themselves on a dirt road with tall trees all around and of a, a roadblock, but they didn't know where or when that occurred. They heard a second series of those buzzing sounds on the car. They looked. They did not see the UFO at that time. And Betty said to Barney, well, Barney, now do you believe in flying saucers? And he said, oh, Betty, don't be ridiculous. I can prove to you that I can make that sound. So he stopped the car. He drove from one side of the road to the other. He would speed up and he would slow down and still he couldn't reproduce the sound. They were yearning for human contact. They couldn't find a restaurant that was open. They couldn't find a police officer. Barney wanted to report it. And they drove on home, arriving between two and three hours later than they had anticipated, even though they knew that route. So uh, they went into the car, into the house, um, and the first thing Barney did was to, to use the bathroom and, and to look down at his shoes to take his, untie them to take them off. And he noticed that the toes of his shoes were so deeply scraped that he had to buy new shoes. And Barney was a meticulous dresser. Um, Betty went into the house. And when she took off her dress, it was torn. It hadn't been torn uh, when she was traveling on that route. Uh, the, the hem was torn down on one side. The lining was torn from waist to hemline. And the zipper that ran up the back of her dress was damaged. There was a one-inch tear in the thick zipper fabric and a two-inch tear in the stitching along the zipper. Uh, she couldn't explain that. She didn't know how it had happened. She only knew that it had to be repaired, so she put it into her closet. The next time she took it out, it was coated with a pink powdery substance that has been analyzed in several scientific laboratories. Uh, also, the, the watches that they were wearing that night uh, had stopped running and never ran again. The binocular strap was severed because Barney pulled it down from his eyes with such force as he attempted to escape and run back to the car that he apparently 
uh, damaged the or broke the binocular strap. And uh, after Betty called my mother, Betty wanted to know uh, what the physicist who who was one of our neighbors had to say about this. They were afraid they'd been contaminated. And he told them that if, or told Betty, if she had a compass, she should take it out to the car to see how the needle would react. Now, of course, everybody knows that uh, it will react near the battery, but she went along the side of the car and it seemed normal until she got to the rear of the car uh, where she found those shiny spots that hadn't been there the day before. And when she held the compass over those spots, the needle whirled, indicating a magnetic field. Now, this, so there are a couple of, I mean, all of this stuff is really important, especially as, you know, as your research into those items becomes, uh, you know, deeper and more scientific, including that dress. So just, well, hopefully we'll get back to the dress. But um, just to be clear, I mean, it was, so in 1961, this event happens. She takes off the dress, puts it into her closet, forgets about it for three years. And when she pulls it out three years later, untouched during those three years, it has a, a pink powder covering the dress. Uh, that's weird. I mean, that's that's, re- that's really, really weird. So now I want to come in now at this point. So this is the encounter. This, these are the immediate events afterwards. And I think even, you know, uh, really quickly, just to put a button on that, you mentioned that Betty was a religious journaler. She had lots of journals. And the night she came back from this, you know, that at 5 a.m. or whatever, the day after, she wrote in her journal that they had the most amazing experience or it was the most amazing thing that's ever happened to them, or something along those lines. She wrote that yes. in her journal, in conscious memory, the day after, correct? Yes, and, and they wrote a letter to um, NICAP after she went to the Portsmouth Public Library and took out the first book she had ever read on UFOs by uh, Donald Kehoe, who was the director of the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. And there was a request in the book, if you had a UFO sighting, to send it in to NICAP. So Betty and Barney sat down and they wrote the letter uh, showing the flight pattern of the craft, talking about how close it came, and talking about the figures dressed in black shiny uniforms that Barney had observed on the, uh, through the binoculars uh, of individuals who were on that craft. Well, so... Um... Now, I want to take a step here. So now that we've talked about the experience, the immediate aftermath, I, I really want to know. So a lot of the story is kind of told in third person. You know, you're kind of recounting events um, that you weren't present for, obviously. I want to know what it was like for you to have heard one side of the phone call. So walk me through the, the, your experience, like the, the events that you personally witnessed um, from the first call to your mother. Uh, well, that uh, my aunt and uncle had been on a vacation trip to Niagara Falls. Well, funny thing, I had been to Niagara Falls uh, just a month or two before that. I showed Betty and Barney my photographs. I had such a wonderful time there that Barney decided to uh, surprise Betty with a trip to Niagara Falls because she'd never been there. So in a sense, I felt responsible. Oh, wow. Uh, It was my recommendation, in a sense. And so uh, I I had that. And then uh, my mother told me about what had happened. And in school, I had learned about our solar system 
and uh, that there was the belief by uh, astronomers that none of the stars or uh, planets, I mean, none of the planets in our solar system were inhabited by life. So I said, how could that be? Um, as far as we know, there is nobody there. There's no life on this. That's what I learned in school. And so my immediate reaction was to become very interested in astronomy. And my father bought me a telescope, and we would go out at night and look at the stars. Uh, and within a couple of days, and you know, to back up again, my parents and my two, my two brothers and I uh, rode to Betty's and Barney's house, and my father sat quietly in a corner with Barney, uh, talking. Uh, my father told me later on, when I was doing my own investigation, that Barney was very clear about what he saw, that he, there was a craft that was hovering overhead, and there were uh, figures standing in that craft looking down at him. The only thing that he didn't remember was the features on their faces. He felt threatened by them. Um, we spent our time with Betty, and her real name was Eunice, Eunice Elizabeth. But uh, her friends didn't like her name, Eunice. So in high school, they, they called her Betty instead. So that stuck with her through her life. But uh, she uh, was with my mother and my two brothers and I. She told us what they had observed, uh, how close it had come in. Uh, that their watches were not working, uh, told us about some of the evidence. And we went out and we looked at the trunk of the car and those shiny spots. And my brother Glenn and I were older than, than Tom. Tom's five years younger than I. And so we were lifting him up so that he could see those spots too. Um, and then Glenn and I had our fingers and we were going to try to rub them off, but uh, my mother and Betty said, don't touch them, don't touch them. Maybe, you know, they, maybe they're contaminated. They might hurt you. And so uh, we were then uh, quickly escorted back into the house. So you so you were able to get a firsthand experience on, at the very least, of the, the shiny white circles. Now, what and they were weren't they... white. Oh, they weren't white. They weren't what, white. So what, what, did they, what did they look like? Were they smooth? What, what, what was the, you know, from what your recollection? Yeah, they were just like polished metal, very okay. shiny, shiny metal, um, as if uh, wax had been applied and highly polished in those particular areas. Wow, that is so odd. That is yeah. that is one of the, I mean, because the way it's described and the way even you described it was that you heard a buzzing sound that hit the car, right? Like the way sound works, sound doesn't really hit the car. You know, I mean, that, so that that part doesn't make sense. But what what it sounds like is they heard a sound and then felt an impact on the car. Physical. Um, I don't want to put words, but maybe like hail hitting the car. Is that kind of what it was like? Well, it was a clear night. And no, it wasn't like hail hitting the car. Um, so it wasn't like dunk, dunk, what dunk, the, dunk. they had friends who were Air Force officers and the Air Force officers uh, met with them and, you know, privately and told them that it reminded them of sonar, that maybe it was some kind of sonar or something like that that was striking the vehicle. Well, I guess my, my question is more of how did they know it struck the vehicle, right? I mean, because sound waves, when they hit something, 
you don't feel them unless their wavelength is big enough to shake the car. So that's kind well, of... Well, they, were, I, I, hearing, I, uh, they uh, were hearing buzzing. They heard the sounds. Yeah. They heard the buzzing sounds coming, and they, it seemed to be coming from the trunk of the car. Oh, the sounds seemed to be emanating from the trunk of the car, and that's how... Okay. Well, not emanating from, as if something above was striking the trunk of the car, and when they arrived home and, and then went to the trunk of the car, they saw those spots in the same area where they heard those buzzing sounds, code-like buzzing sounds that appeared to be seemed like they were striking the trunk of the car. It wasn't coming from inside the trunk and up. It was coming from overhead and down. Yeah, that may, I mean, I guess I'm trying to figure out what that could be because normally, I mean, that's a very strange way to describe what happened. Um, and it's also a very important part of the story because... From what I from from what I understand, that buzzing sound, whatever that thing was, you know, later on we learned that that both signifies the beginning of their memory loss. And basically, it bookends what they remember and what they don't. So as soon as they hear the buzzing sounds, they forget everything that happens until they hear those buzzing sounds and feel the impact on their car once again. Correct? They didn't forget everything. They remembered. The fiery orb oh, right. sitting yeah, yeah. on the ground. Yeah. They remembered finding themselves on a dirt road with tall trees all around. They remembered a roadblock, but they were they were fuzzy. They were not clear, clear memories. I see. Uh, okay. And yes, yeah, so so that's the way it occurred. So it's yeah. like the beginning and the end of their memory manipulation of some kind. That at least signifies, uh, you know, what basically the, the edit points where their memory was to be cut out or to be not consciously remembered, which is a very interesting technology w when you think about it. Um, but but I want to know, so when you heard all of this stuff, you know, when you heard the one side of the conversation from your mom, uh, did this, you know, children and adults have very different approaches and very different mindsets when it comes to this type of phenomenon. You know, anything that's hard to believe uh, as an adult is not as hard to believe as a child. So were you more, what were your thoughts on this? Like when you first heard it compared to like your parents' initial reactions? Well, Betty and Barney were role models. They were upstanding citizens. So there would be no reason not to believe what they said. And that's what the way all the scientists and all of the investigators uh, thought of it too, except for the disinformants who uh, disseminated false information. So you didn't have any like immediate reactions like, wow, I can't believe this happened to my aunt or there's aliens, there's really aliens, or this seems a little far-fetched. Uh, no, I mean, it, it, did be, it did seem shocking because you now here is a new knowledge set that I hadn't had previously. And there's more to this world than I had realized. But uh, aside from that, no, I uh, there was no reason for me not to believe they were they were honest they were interested in learning more particularly betty barney just wanted to forget about it he kept saying forget about it betty no good can come out of ever talking hmm. to anyone about this um and then so when this all happened there were a couple one of the things that i wrote down from the book a lot of strange things happened after that encounter, which included Betty's earrings that she had, these blue earrings that matched the dress from that night, they appeared mm -hmm. in a pile of leaves on her table. 
What, what, what is this story? This is very strange. It was very strange. Betty and Barney were out for the day. They arrived home at, uh, at night and went into their house. And there on the dining room table were some withered leaves that hadn't been there. Very strange. They picked up the leaves to throw them out. And there in the leaves were the earrings that Betty had been wearing that night. And she hadn't even uh, been aware that they were missing. But uh, so she was kind of startled to to see those earrings. And I believe uh, there's also another story about how um, like uh, uh, something made out of ice also appeared on her dining room table. Yes. At at one time, uh, she and and Barney arrived home and uh, there was uh, a newspaper uh, that hadn't been there on the table. And on that newspaper was. Uh, ice that uh, didn't behave like regular ice. Uh, the, the first reaction she had was to put it in the sink and, and run hot water on it. And it took a very long time for it to melt. And what was it in the shape of? Uh, I think it was like in the shape of a bowl, and it seemed to have something inside it. And it just appeared on their table. Just appeared on their table. Yes, and have, had not melted. <laughs> right. Well, it's 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 crazy because I mean, besides you know not rubbing off the little the marks on the back of the car, it's funny how especially back in the fifties and sixties, people's initial instinct is almost exactly what you shouldn't do. You know, I mean, you know, running hot water, I mean, I would have wanted to keep it. That is really strange. I, I, but I do understand the need to like, what is this thing of the devil? Let's put it down the sink. But also, I would have been very curious as to why it didn't melt and what was in them. Did they find what was in the middle? Did it melt out? It melted and uh, no, nothing, nothing significant. Nothing significant. Wow. And, and so, so all, so this is all after, you know, after the events. And as you know, you mentioned that Betty had dreams for five days that in some ways it filled in the gaps between those buzzing sounds, correct? What, so what was she dreaming about? She was dreaming about, uh, meeting up with a roadblock and there were, uh, several men, um, eight to 11 men standing in the middle of the road. Uh, they looked very human, uh, Southern European, uh, about five, five and a half feet tall, black hair, regular human features, uh, dressed in uh, light navy blue cadet uniforms. Uh, that's what her dream was. That's not what she and Barney recalled under hypnosis, but that is what she dreamed. She dreamed that they surrounded the car. And um, and then took them out. That's not what happened under hypnosis either. And under hypnosis, Betty and Barney were hypnotized separately, and amnesia was reinstated at the end of each session, so they could not share information. Mm. But each of them uh, spoke of the same thing that happened, and that was part of my comparative analysis. I didn't write the scientific analysis in the book because everyone would have been bored. But uh, so I, I made it interesting. Uh-huh. <laughs> but yes, but I, I did a scientific uh, social science analysis of their statements and then compared them to the statements in Betty's dream material. So uh, some of the information in Betty's dreams 
uh, bled through. And I think it was confabulation in Betty's uh, hypnosis sessions that they saw Dr. Simon for a period of six months. And, you know, so I, I think that there, for Betty, there's a combination of just uh, confabulation uh, from her dream material mixed with reality. And so if I, I, I want to briefly talk about what they did come up with in hypnosis. Now, I got to say, this is one of the things that they, this is, I meant to mention this at the top is one of the things that's kind of unique about this particular story, but it's also the thing that people use to discredit their story as well. You know, the inaccuracies of hypnosis and, and, you know, whatever people want to say, I will say that I'm on the fence with hypnosis. Uh, I, I, you know, I think it can be used for, I don't know how much I believe in its power. I don't know that I believe the accuracy of it all the time. I think people can be, if they are put into a highly suggestible state, can be made to believe things that aren't true. So I, I think this is a very, it's a very powerful weapon that can be used and misused very easily. Now, I'm not saying whether that is or is not the case with this particular story. This particular story is actually very compelling. Um, and and to me is more of evidence on on how interesting it can be for regressive hypnosis. But I just want to say at the onset that I'm not a believer in it uh, for every situation. I'm not either. And let me say I I uh, received some funding. I went to the University of New Hampshire and studied hypnosis uh, in all of the uh, periodicals for uh, a summer. And wrote uh, a research article, which is on my uh, website at Kathleen-Marden.com. So you can go there to read it. I also underwent training uh, to become a hypnotist because I I felt that that would fill in the rest that I didn't know. Mm. But you're absolutely right. I agree with you about the foibles of hypnosis. It it is not a good uh, instrument. Uh, oftentimes, particularly if the uh, the person who is doing the hypnosis is suggesting something to the person uh, or is uh, leading the person to a certain story mm-hmm. by even saying, well, did you turn left or did you turn right? Or look around the room and tell me what you see. That That is suggestive mm-hmm. because maybe the person has their eyes closed, but they're following the voice of authority. And in my studies, it's authority more than anything else that can uh, Mm. be dangerous in hypnosis, where you might do or believe things based upon uh, the authority figure. Now, Dr. Simon tried to lead Betty and Barney away from the story. Now he was their hip, he was their uh, hypnotherapist or hip, I don't know what you would call them the scientific version but he was He their. was a neuropsychiatrist who uh, was famous uh, because he had set up the psychiatric unit at the Mason General Hospital during World War II. This was on rope uh, on Long Island and uh, he had a great deal of success in treating people who were coming back with shell shock and conversion hysteria where they had physiological symptoms that were psychogenically induced. Uh, He developed a new hypnosis technique to get to the truth and to resolve these soldiers' issues. In fact, the movie Let There Be Light was made about his work. 
So he was the head of uh, psychological or psychiatric associations. He'd owned his own private psychiatric hospital. He had been a teacher at Harvard and at Yale. And when Betty and Barney saw him, he was uh, toward retirement age and with a long history of of having done successful work. He was in who's who in America. He, so he was on the cutting edge of of this type of, of treatment. Uh, I mean, I think we can, yeah. at least, we can at least agree on that. And so, so they went to him. And so I want to talk briefly about what they uncovered. We don't have to go um, with each session individually, because I know this kind of was revealed in steps, in stages. But as you mentioned, it had a striking, first of all, their stories were strikingly similar, despite the fact that they were in separate rooms and were undergoing uh, this type of therapy separately. But also a striking similarity to Betty had a striking, her experience had a striking similarity to her dreams. Uh, this is very, this is very intriguing to me. So if you don't mind, can we talk about what they uncovered as the events that transpired between uh, the buzzes, let's say, between, you know, their conscious memory and then them driving home, remembering very, very little? Well, that vague memory of the dirt road with tall trees all around. Uh, came out that this is where they found themselves uh, without having really clear memories about how they arrived there. And there were uh, figures standing in the road. Uh, in, hip, in Betty's dreams, uh, she and Barney were quiet. Uh, they just sat there quietly. But that's not what happened. Uh, when the car stalled out, Betty and Barney were wondering, is it is there an accident ahead? Uh, are we being robbed? What's going on? And then Barney said to Betty, uh, it's them. It's the ones I saw in the field. They, uh, there were six of them standing in the road, not the nine to 11 that, or eight to 11 that Betty dreamed about. And they divided into two groups. They didn't surround the car like in Betty's dreams. They three went to Betty's door. Three went to Barney's door. They, uh, Betty attempted to escape into the woods, but was intercepted. Uh, she was rendered unconscious. Barney uh, decided to cooperate so that he would not be uh, harmed. And he was taken from the vehicle. He opened the door. He put his foot out, and he was uh, taken. He had the feeling that he was floating, and only the toes of his shoes were bumping along the rock. And um, he, he could feel his uh, shoes then slide up what seemed like a ramp and bump over something at the top of this ramp as he was taken into a darkened hallway and into an examining room. Uh, for Betty, she was escorted down. I don't know if she was floating or not or if she was confabulating, but um, it's what she remembered, uh, and this was not in the hypnosis, because you don't say everything in hypnosis uh, that you think. Mm -hmm. Just like when we're talking to somebody, we have many thoughts, but we don't state everything that comes to our mind. Well, some of us don't. Some of us do. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> but you shouldn't, I guess, is the is the lesson Right, there. you shouldn't. Mm. <laughs> right. So anyway... Uh, she remembered as being escorted. They were reassuring her. Uh, it was only simple tests. 
uh, nothing to fear. They would be returned uh, to their vehicle. They'd be on their way home in no time. And she did not believe them. She resisted. She kicked the one uh, on one side. And this is how the hem was torn Mm. down and the dress was torn from waist to hemline. Uh, They then pointed something at her again. She sort of became docile and was taken on board the craft into a separate examining room. So uh, she and Barney just underwent the same types of physical examinations. Uh, They were very interested in their skeletal structure, their muscular structure, their nervous system. Uh, They took scrapings and samples from their body. They inserted a needle into Betty's navel uh, years before amniocentesis was being used in a hospital setting. Mm -hmm. And uh, they did... uh, take a sperm sample from Barney. Yeah, you mentioned that stuff was extracted from basically every orifice, and you also mentioned an anal probe, which in, you know, in pop culture, that has kind of become the joke that you've been abducted by aliens is getting an anal probe. But this struck me as very odd because it's it's the way you would do a... Comp- I mean, they were almost treated like animals in a scientific experiment. You know, all these markers yeah. that we know, they're pulling stuff from different, you know, nail clippings, uh, um, t- t- earwax, you know, uh, whatever, you know, the, the needle, you know, as you, and you mentioned a very strange sequence where she's in extraordinary pain, Betty is, uh, with this needle getting put into her navel, yeah. uh, and then they basically wave their hand over her face and the pain is gone. Uh, there's some a lot of really strange stuff going on here. Um, and you also mentioned one of the things I have to address before we end is Betty had a, she had this dress on that was open and closed via a zipper, which I guess most women's dresses are. Mm-hmm. And the um, these creatures, these humanoids, had trouble getting the zipper off, so much so that they tore the zipper, which you mentioned earlier, which is one of the the tears in her Mm -hmm. dress. This, I think, is often under the subject of scrutiny because if they can, you know, if if you've got a a race of of creatures who can fly around the universe and, you know, snatch people out and detect them with, you know, with implants, how can they not operate a zipper? You know, that, that, I think that that kind of does make people raise eyebrows. I'm not saying whether it did or did not happen, but it is a little strange. Well, as Dr. Bruce Maccabee wrote in, in the forward to the book that, um, you know, maybe it was just too distant in their past, that kind of technology and, uh, you know, very primitive technology. And um, they they just thought to pull it apart. <laughs> rather than to unzip. But by the time (laughs) they got to Barney, they had learned the mistake that they made on Betty's dress. Right. (laughs) Right. I guess you need that for a sperm sample, I guess is what you're saying. Uh, It's a very, I mean, this is a, I mean, just, you know, I'm kind of making light of it, but what an invasive process. I mean, this is, this is not something I would want to recall under hypnosis. This is kind of something I think I would rather be buried (laughs) without. I feel like that would cause a lot of psychological psychological issues for me. Um, but this is, you know... Th- well, it did for Barney. Yeah, I, I, I mean, uh, yeah, of course it would. I mean, that's, it's, it's I, I mean, 
to be treated like that. I mean, it's just whether look, I mean, no matter what side of the fence that you're on, whether you believe that it happened or whether you believe that it didn't happen, but they believe that it happened. It's still in your memory. It's still it's still there on the surface as an event that you believe happened to you. And that's I mean, that is profoundly that would profoundly affect how you would be for the you know, for the rest of your life. Um, I mean, this is it's it's an incredible story that we've I mean, we uh, to say we scratch the surface is not even remotely remotely true. I mean, this is, there's plenty that happens after all of this, and, and there's a scientific experiment to recontact um, the, the, the craft and, and, the, and the humanoids. Uh, I mean, this, this is just a great book. You did an incredible job, and the appendix is amazing. You know, you've got all of the official documents, you. Uh, you know, and there's a, you know, I, I quickly mentioned in closing here, you know, Betty was, Betty asked to see, um, to, to bring something back to prove that this happened. One of the people agreed to give her a book, uh, but then someone else said no, and the book had a lot of strange, you know, alien writing in it. So she didn't get that. But she, but this 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 creature did show her a picture of, of a basically it's called the, you call it the star map and it's this map of all of the stars and their trade routes and you know the, basically you know a map of the stars where they came from and what where they were connecting to and where they were exploring. Uh, this is, I mean, this is some really incredible stuff that they saw. Uh, I mean, just what an experience. I mean, this is this really must have been a difficult book for you to put together. I mean, it's hard it for me to put together a coherent <laughs> sentence this, describing it, but you put together quite a coherent book. So that must have been quite a bit of work. It was. As I said, I worked over a period of 14 years, you know, slowly investigating this meticulously and uh, contributing to it. And I had made the decision that I would not publish it until after Betty's death. She knew that I was writing it, but I did not want to get myself into any trouble with her um, where uh, I might insult her or hurt her feelings. Right. Uh, because I was completely uh, unbiased, I felt, and I had to look at this scientifically. My background's in social science, so, and education too, but uh, I'm... Um, been more intellectually inclined than than just as, as a teacher. So um, I wanted to do the very best job that I could. And if I decided that this really did not happen, I was going to publish that it, I did not mm -hmm. believe it happened. Mm -hmm. um, not that they hoaxed it in any way, but only that it would have been a mistake. No, I, I think, and I think you did a great job with that. I think you, I mean, uh, an absolute success. Uh, and the book is called Captured, as I mentioned, uh, the Captured, the Bar Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. Now, where can people find that and where can people find you? Do you do social media, anything like that? Yes, well, you can purchase the book at any bookstore or Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any of the online stores. Uh, they were selling it at Walmart online and, and Target online the last time I checked as well. Or you can order an autographed copy from me at my website, which is Kathleen-Marden.com. I am on Facebook. I don't go there very often because I remain very busy in my work, but I do visit occasionally. So the best way to... Uh, contact me or to uh, see the uh, read the articles that I have on my website uh, is or purchase books is to go there or to find out where I'll be speaking this year. 
at Kathleen-Marden.com. And I love links on the website. I highly recommend that you grab a book from Kathleen's website. Who doesn't want an autographed copy? You know, I always say. You're going to stick around. We're going to do a quick bonus episode on Betty's dress, which we talked about. I mean, this is really, uh, this was the star of the book for me. Uh, I mean, it really doesn't pay off until the end of the book, uh, but this is really incredible. We're going to talk about um, some of the stuff you found, which is out of this world, uh, <laughs> pun intended. Uh, very incredible stuff. Um, but, you know, I want to thank you for, for taking out so much time for me today. This is an incredible story. You did a great job. And thank you so much for being on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn Co. production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And if you like the show, you got to subscribe. You can find us on all the major podcasting platforms. So if you are already subscribed, you're already right there. But let's say that you're not. I got you covered there. Go to fascinatingnouns.com at the bottom of the page. You can just click, click on your favorite, favorite platform. It's all right there. And right next to that, we got our social media. You can find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages all right there at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. At the top, you can find all of our shows. Our entire library is online right there, organized by guest or by topic, right there, fascinatingnouns.com. Of course, you can watch the show on YouTube if you prefer. And if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.